Well, let's get started. Uh, we're a little late getting started. I want to hold, wanted to hold off because of the weather. I knew that some people would be running late. Um, did not expect it to snow as much as it did, and so I'm assuming that other people did not expect it to snow as much as it did. <laughs> wow. All right, so we are on uh, the bottom of page 75 where you see it says the millennium. And because we're getting started late, I'm going to push through this at a pretty quick pace. Um, and then at the end, if we have time for questions, we'll do that. But if not, we can open up the discussion during our lunch time. Um, but I do want to make sure that I get through this section uh, adequately. So we're at the bottom of page 75, the millennium. And Bob, can I get you to open us in prayer? Lord, um, thank you for this day. Beautiful snow. Lord, I pray for safety for those that are still traveling. Lord, you would uh, watch over and keep us put your hand and rest upon us. We'll heal our cars on this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can explore it and understand it. And that we might grow richer in our knowledge of your word and enjoy the discussions today. Thank you for your early kindness in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so before we get started looking at the different views, it is important to note that evangelical Christians are not in full agreement on uh, this topic concerning the time of Christ's return and the millennial age that's referred to in Revelation chapter 20. There are four views that are uh, known in, in, in this realm as the four millennial views, uh, and those are premillennialism, or you may hear it uh, be referred to as historic premillennialism, and that's to distinguish it from uh, dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. Uh, both of those are premillennial uh, views, but they are distinct. So you have historic premillennialism, dispensationalism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Those are the four views. And so we're going to look at these di four different views, uh, seeing what their structure is, how they differ from each other. Uh, there are views that are not accepted within our denomination, uh, so keep that in mind, uh, especially those of you who may be looking at uh, officer candidacy. Um, and, uh, but there is some freedom that's allowed in uh, holding some differing views in our denomination. Um, so we're going to look first uh, at the, I'm not going to start at postmillennialism. I'm going to start at premillennialism because that makes more sense to me. So seven, page 77, 
the premillennial view of the second coming. This is historic premillennialism. You may also, in your reading of different things, uh, see theologians refer to this as chiliasm, which is just another word for uh, premillennialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, you may also hear it referred to as millenarianism, uh, which is another older term. But the modern term that we use is premillennialism. No, millenarianism. So, so premillennialism. Uh, you see there, there is a chart that shows you the premillennial view in its steps. Um, So you have the Old Kingdom, the Old Testament Kingdom, and then there's Christ's first coming when he was born of the Virgin Mary. There... um, and, and then his first coming is encompassed his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Then you have Pentecost. There is the age of good and evil. There is the apostasy and the rise of the Antichrist. Then there is the second coming of Christ. And after his second coming of Christ, those who are dead in Christ, those who have died who are Christians, will be resurrected. And then there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And the resurrected saints will reign with Christ for 1,000 years on the earth. After that, is the resurrection of the lost. And then there is the judgment of the wicked in which they will be cast into the lake of fire. And then Christ will institute his uh, the new heavens and the new earth and you will have the new eternal kingdom. Okay? So what's important here to note is that Christ's second coming happens before his millennial reign. Hence the name pre-millennialism. Because his return, his second coming, is before pre-the millennium. Millennialism, pre-millennialism. So Christ returns following the time of tribulation to resurrect the saints to bind Satan, to give the opportunity for more conversions, to reign for a thousand years on earth with Jerusalem as his capital, and then to judge the wicked at the end of the millennium and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Um, This view was held by a lot of early church fathers 
And that's why it's referred to as historic premillennialism, because it does have historical basis. Um, problem is, it doesn't really have biblical basis. Um, and so our book here lists some weaknesses of this view. Based on forced literalistic interpretations of certain Old Testament prophecies, but not all of them. So it's based on certain Old Testament prophecies and reading them literally, but they don't read literally all of the Old Testament prophecies, or else this view wouldn't be in existence. The literalistic reading, and we'll see this again at dispensationalism, is they claim that they are consistent in reading the Bible the way that it's written. But they're inconsistent in reading the Bible in that same way every time. Um, so they will, they will interpret one prophecy literal. They'll interpret another prophecy as metaphorical. And in this framework, that really doesn't work. Um, because you can't say... Uh, that one thing is fully literal and must be interpreted as literal when the very next sentence you're going to interpret as metaphorical or symbolic. It also insists that Revelation 20 and verses 1 through 6 is literal. That's the millennial reign, that it's a literal 1,000 years even though it describes a scene in heaven and it makes no mention of the Jews or Palestine. So they take Revelation 21 through 6, and I'm actually going to read that real quick so that we know the section of Scripture that we're referencing. Revelation 21 through 6, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottom, bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witnesses of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So they say the historic premillennialists would say that this is literal. That Satan will be bound for a literal 1,000 years 
and that during that time, Christ will reign with the resurrected saints for a literal 1,000 years. But they would hold that this means that Christ is reigning in Jerusalem. Did anywhere in there say that Christ is reigning from Jerusalem? This is imposing into the scripture what they think is going to happen instead of actually taking scripture for what it says. So they want to be literalistic, but they then want to add to it as well. Another weakness of this view is that it makes the kingdom of God a future earthly kingdom, while the New Testament presents it as a spiritual, heavenly, and already in existence. Um, and you see their references to New Testament scriptures. Uh, nowhere do we see in scripture that Christ's kingdom is an earthly kingdom. In fact, you have Christ saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, how do historic premillennialists square their position with Christ's words there? You have to read them because basically every one of them is going to have a different way of understanding that. And then uh, the final weakness is that it denies the general resurrection and teaches two separate resurrections. Uh Someone read Matthew twenty five thirty one through forty six. Or someone read Matthew twenty five thirty one through um, thirty one through thirty nine, and then someone read forty to forty six. And the Son of Man came in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on his left. And he shall then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, and here the kingdom. Prepared for me from the foundation of the world. For I was a hunger, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when, when, when saw we thee a hunger and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we be a stranger and took me in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when shall we be sick or in prison and came unto thee? The king shall answer and say unto him, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of you, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto him, as on the left hand, 
Depart from me, be cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and he gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and he gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he took me not in. Naked, and he clothed me not. And he clothed me not. Sick, and he shall, and in prison, and he visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when we saw thee hungry, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or prison, and did not minister unto thee? And he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, as much as you did it, not unto one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away with everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto his eternal life. So you see there that what Christ is teaching in the resurrection is that both the righteous and the wicked are resurrected at the same time. And there's the separation of the, of the sheep and the goats. And they're judged accordingly. This is the general resurrection. This is what all of Scripture teaches. is the general resurrection. But they would say... Well, Revelation 20 teaches two different uh, resurrections. And if you read it at face value, it does appear that way. But that's a hyper-literalistic reading of that text. And how are you to interpret Scripture? You interpret the harder-to-understand passages in light of the easier to understand passages. So if you're reading all of scripture, looking at the resurrection of, uh, of the dead, and all of scripture teaches a single resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, but then you get to Revelation 20 and it seems to teach two, two separate resurrections, you interpret... Revelation 20, in light of the rest of Scripture. That maybe it's not a literal separate resurrection. Maybe what we're seeing there is symbolic and is to be interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture. That's how you do proper hermeneutics, proper biblical interpretation. Um, so that is, that is a flaw of of the premillennial view that it teaches two separate resurrections instead of a single resurrection. Um, it, yeah. Um, as far as I understand it, the RPCNA has rejected this view, historic premillennialism. And I would have to find the Acts of Synod in which they have done that, but it is my understanding that a millenarian view, a chiliastic view, is not, um, is not acceptable in the RPCNA for officers of the church. Um, we don't bind members in their position, but it is my understanding that the RPCNA has rejected this view. A 
modified form of premillennialism that came about in the 1800s, so very new, is what's called dispensational premillennialism or dispensationalism. And this is probably what you uh, may think of most readily when you, when you think of the second coming of Christ. Because this is the dominant position in modern American evangelicalism. Um, and even outside of America, it's spreading rapidly. And uh, it's been made popular by book series and movies uh, such as Left Behind. Um, this position was first uh, espoused by a man named John Nelson Darby. Uh, and so you may hear or you may read some theologians refer to it as Darbyism. Uh, but it's called dispensationalism. And it's a specialized form of premillennialism that emphasizes the role of Israel in prophecy. Its outstanding points include chronologically the viewing of the gospel or church age as a parenthesis between Christ's comings. The immediate return of Christ for his saints, called the any moment rapture or the secret rapture before the tribulation. There's a seven year period of tribulation when Antichrist is revealed. There is another return of Christ with his saints to destroy Antichrist and to bind Satan. There is a revived Jewish empire with temple worship under Christ for 1,000 years. And when we say temple worship, that includes the sacrificial system. Then there is the loosing of Satan for a short time after the millennium and the final battle of Armageddon. Then there is the destruction of the world and the beginning of the eternal kingdom. So if you look there at uh, the diagram, you have the Old Testament, then Christ's first coming, Pentecost, a time of good and evil, and then there is Christ's first, second coming. Also known as the secret rapture. Saints rapture, where the saints are resurrected and meet Christ in the sky and are ushered into glory and removed from uh, the earth during the time of tribulation in which the rise of Antichrist happens. Then there is Christ's second, second coming. in which Christ reigns on the earth as a Jewish king in Jerusalem, reinstituting the temple worship, bringing in the Jews under his reign as some kind of kind of Jew, 
kind of Christian mix because they're they're worshiping in the temple, performing sacrifices, and yet they are claiming to be under Christ. Satan's bound during this time. Then Satan is loosed, but only for the purpose of the final war at uh, that they call Armageddon. Uh, and that's when Gog and Magog uh, arise and join the fight. Then the earth is consumed in fire. There is the judgment. And then there's the eternal kingdom. Um, if that sounds insane to you, it's because it is. Uh, this makes for really good Christian fan fiction. And, and I'll be the first to admit, I find the Left Behind books incredibly entertaining. And I even like the movies, including the new one that stars Nicolas Cage, which everyone hates. It has the lowest score on Rotten Tomatoes of any movie ever, and I think it's fantastic. Um, this makes really great Christian fan fiction. But this makes absolutely miserable theology. Some of you chuckled when I said you have Christ's first second coming and then his second second coming. And that's because it's absurd. So... Let's break down a couple of the weaknesses of this view. It has the same weaknesses as historic premillennialism. So there's that. But then it adds to that that it destroys the biblical concept of the church as an agent of Christ's kingdom by making the kingdom totally future. The church has no place in bringing in the kingdom of Christ. It's all a Jewish work and a secret work. The church has no, uh, has no place in, in the ushering in of the kingdom. The biggest weakness of this view is the blasphemy, and it's not, it's not listed here in the, in the list, the biggest weakness of this view is the blasphemy of proposing or purporting that Christ has two separate people and they remain separate forever. He has His special chosen people which are the Jews and then because the Jews rejected Him at His first coming, He had to go to plan B which was the church and so he worked a little bit in the church age, but that was never really his purpose. And that's why it is first second coming, or, or at his second second coming, I'm sorry. At his second second coming, that's why he institutes the temple worship and brings back the Jews. It's because they're really his chosen people. The Gentiles, the church, they were an afterthought. And in this millennial reign, you have two separate people of God 
two separate churches, two separate ways of worship in this millennial reign. Because you have the church, the Gentiles, the New Testament church, that are worshiping according to the New Testament. But then you have God's special chosen people that are the Jews. And they're worshiping in the temple the way that God intended. And the reason I say this is blasphemy is because A, it does violence to Christ's atonement for all of His people. He has one elect chosen race. But it's also blasphemy because in reinstituting the temple worship, it reinstitutes the sacrifices, thus doing away with Christ's sacrifice as the once for all sacrifice for sins. And you have dispensationalists today who are adamant that we need to be striving towards reclaiming Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and bringing back the sacrifices. And those people claim to be Christians. They want to nullify Christ's actual sacrifice by bringing back the sacrifices of old. That's blasphemous. And it's wicked. And yet, the vast majority of Christians today are deceived into thinking that this is the view of the Scriptures. And then the final, um, not really the final weakness, there are a million weaknesses to this view. The final listed in our book is that by its insistence on an any-moment rapture or a secret rapture, dispensationalism thrives on sensationalism. It distorts historical details and it creates unwarranted fear and hope. Dispensationalism is literally newspaper theology. You open up the newspaper, see what's happening, and say, oh, we're one step closer. Dispensationalists are having a field day with the war that's going on between Israel and Palestine. Because they see it as one step closer towards Israel reclaiming rights over the Temple Mount so that they can rebuild the Temple. Maybe you hear uh, reports of uh, you know, a red calf has been born in Jerusalem and now the Temple sacrifices can be reinstituted. Or you may hear, you know, there are plans at work for the laying of the cornerstone of the third temple. This is what the vast majority of modern Christians believe. And so anything that happens in the Middle East is viewed as some kind of prophetic sign of the Lord concerning the end times. This position has been categorically denounced by every Reformed church there is. You cannot be in a, an officer in a Reformed denomination and hold to this position. 
And if you are a member in a reformed denomination and hold to this position, you will be counseled and instructed and taught all the various blasphemies related to this and why you must forsake this position. It has no scriptural backing. You know, the, the dispensationalists will claim that the locusts that are described in the prophecies of the Old Testament are Apache helicopters. That's the insanity that this position holds. And if you want some, if you want some uh, good uh, humorous reading, pick up a John Hagee book. Read about his blood moons. It's hilarious. Or it would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad that so many people are deceived by it. This is a wicked doctrine. And it's blasphemous. And it, it truly does violence to the work of Christ. And it has to be rejected outright. 100%. There should be no room for dispensationalists in any church. And especially in Reformed churches. Let me, let me correct what I just said. There should be no room for dispensationalism in any church. And especially in Reformed churches. There's always room for dispensationalists in the church so long as they see the error of their ways and turn. All right, so those are the Keliastic views. Now we're going to get to the other two views, which are the most prominent views in Reformed churches. And those are the postmillennial views uh, view and the uh, amillennial view. Right off the bat, I'm having to correct this book on uh, letter A concerning uh, the postmillennial view. It says that it considers the millennial age to be the present period rather than a literal 1,000 year future event. The latter half of that position of, of that statement is true. It's not a literal 1,000 years. But the post-millennial position is not that we are currently living in the millennial reign. Now, if they're saying that it is to be the present period, as in sometime during this current age that we're living in, then yeah, we would agree with that. But they use the same language, we'll see in just a second. They use the same language in letter A for the amillennial view. And the postmillennialists and the amillennialists differ on this. The postmillennialists does not view that we are presently living in the kingdom, in the, in the millennial reign. But we also do not hold to a literal 1,000 year reign. Uh, This is terrible. I'm sorry. B is incorrect as well. The postmillennial position is not that Satan is now bound and unable to thwart the plan and purpose of Christ, the resurrected King of glory who now reigns. 
The post-millennial position is that Satan is not currently bound. And that is why there are still nations that are being deceived today. Because the binding of Satan is for the deceiving of nations. Uh, so that he may not deceive the nations. So the post-millennialist would say Satan is not currently bound but that he will be bound at the beginning of that millennial reign. And that is why there is that millennial reign. It's because Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations. Uh, but we do believe that there is a distinction between Christ's mediatorial reign as king over all the earth and his millennial reign. So this, this section that says uh, the ki resurrected king of glory now reigns, we believe that. And I say we as post-millennialists. Uh, post-millennialists believe that. Christ presently reigns as the mediatorial king over all nations. Christ is king. He's sitting on his throne in, gl in glory at the right hand of the Father, and He is ruling and reigning over all things. But that is distinct from His millennial reign, which is uh, the widespread triumph of Christianity and the Christianizing of the world uh, that happens before His second coming and that is what's called the golden age. That is the millennial reign. This golden age of the Christianizing of all nations so that the whole world is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the, earth, as the waters cover the seas. Uh, there is differences of opinion regarding when that millennium, that golden age, takes place. Some view that the great apostasy happens before that. Uh, most would hold that it, the great apostasy happens after the golden age, after the millennium. And, because, and that's because, as we saw last week, uh, the majority post-millennial view is that the great apostasy happens as a result of the loosing of Satan so that he may go and deceive nations once, so that he is now able to deceive nations again for a short time and that's why you have the great apostasy. Uh, during this millennium, during the golden age, the Jews are converted as a nation, as a people. We, we saw that last week, that prior to Christ's second coming, there is a mass conversion of the Jews. The church, which is the kingdom, will be established in great power uh, when Christ returns. So Christ returns after the apostasy, and the church uh, 
is brought to the forefront and established as the power on the earth because that is when the general resurrection happens and the saints then reign on the earth. The wicked are cast into the lake of fire and the new heavens and the new earth are, are ushered in. There is only one return of Christ. And that is after the millennial reign. After that golden age. That's why it's called post-millennialism. Because the, uh, the, the second coming happens after the millennium, millennial reign. So uh, it is in that one return of Christ after the millennium that the general resurrection and general judgment of all men takes place. At the return of Christ, there will be one final resurrection of both the saved and the lost as we saw in Matthew 25. Strengths of this view is that it takes seriously the optimistic prophecies of the world-changing power of the Gospel. It sees Christ, not Satan, as the victor in history as well as eternity. This is important. Christ is victorious in postmillennialism. Because the gospel wins all over the world. In premillennialism, and it, it, we didn't see this when we looked at it, but in both pre, historic premillennialism and uh, dispensationalism, there is a belief that the world just gets worse and worse and worse, and the gospel has less and less effect on men. And when the world gets bad enough, then the end comes. But postmillennialism says, no, the gospel will advance. The gospel will be successful. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, as Scripture testifies to it. And then it also provides a compelling hope and motivation to labor vigorously for the advancement of the all-encompassing kingdom of Christ. This is our hope that Christ will be and is victorious and the gospel will spread throughout all the earth. Uh, I was having a conversation with Isaac last week and he, he was saying, I never understood why you are so positive and optimistic about us going out and doing evangelism and sharing the gospel until you explained post-millennialism. And that's why. Because I know for certain that the gospel will advance and that the kingdom will spread throughout all the earth, and that all nations will one day bow down to King Jesus. And then there is the amillennial view. 
which is the most popular position in the modern Reformed Church. Hands down, the most popular position. And if you want to understand more fully amillennialism, then I would recommend a book called A Case for Amillennialism by Kim Riddlebarger. Um, he's a man who's familiar to our congregation because he spoke at a conference here several years ago. But A Case for Amillennialism by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger is the best explanation of amillennialism that there is. So if you're wanting a better understanding of this position, get that book and read it. Amillennialism considers the millennial age uh, to be pre the present period rather than a literal 1,000 years. So they get this one right. They got it wrong on the postmillennialists, but they get it right on the amillennialists. The amillennialists would say that from Christ's resurrection to his second coming is his millennial reign, is the kingdom on earth. They believe that Satan is currently bound and unable to thwart the plan and purpose of Christ, the resurrected king of glory who now reigns. So they would agree with us that Christ currently reigns as the mediatorial king, but we would differ in that they would say that Satan is currently bound, unable to deceive the nations. It denies that there is a golden age optimism that's found in postmillennialism. They don't believe. Amillennialism does not teach a golden age. It does not teach a worldwide expansion of the gospel and conversion of the nations uh, as the, the postmillennialists post teach. Uh, that's not to say that they don't believe that the gospel will advance. Amillennialists mostly would agree that the gospel is going to advance. Some amillennialists see a continuing tribulation and apostasy until Christ returns with no heightened persecution or definite signs of his coming. Other amillennialists look for definite signs of Christ's return, such as a heightened tribulation, a specific man of sin, and a general conversion of the Jews. So that first set that believes in a continuing tribulation and apostasy and does not hold to there being specific signs which must be fulfilled, those are primarily what we would refer to as pessimistic amillennialists. Um, they see the world or, or, or the gospel having its ups and its downs. There's this continued tribulation and apostasy. So it's really a downward trajectory. Uh, and then eventually Christ's going to return. There's no signs. There's no conversion of the Jews. Uh, some pessimistic amillennialists will not even say that there is a man of sin 
that there is uh, an Antichrist or the Antichrist that's to come about. The other amillennialists are a lot more like uh, what you see postmillennialists holding to in their optimism. These are what's called optimistic amillennialists. Uh, they do uh, believe that there will be a future time of greater persecution, and then there are these signs of the end times when Christ will return. Uh, and they have a more optimistic outlook. They do believe in, in a greater advancement of the gospel throughout the earth. They do believe in a general conversion of the Jews. Uh, so there are different camps within the amillennial position. That it holds to that there will only be one return of Christ, just as with the postmillennialists, and at that time there's the general judgment of all men that will take place. So the second coming of Christ and what follows are identical with the postmillennial position. Um, at the return of Christ, there will be a final resurrection of both the saved and the lost. And some of the strengths of this position are that it maintains a biblical anticipation of a general resurrection of the just and the unjust alike. So it does hold to that one single resurrection that's taught in Matthew 25 that we looked at. It takes seriously the continued existence of the wheat and tares, the righteous and the wicked, until the harvest at the end of the age. Uh, Postmillennialists would hold to this as well, that until the second coming of Christ, the church will always have hypocrites uh, among it, that there will always be tares among the wheat, and that Christ, when he comes in his second coming, comes with a winnowing fork to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what we saw in Matthew 25. And it seems to account for the expectation of continued persecution of the saints in all ages. The amillennial position is a position that you can hold and be an officer in our denomination. And this is the position of most officers in our denomination. Uh, but historically, our denomination has been a post-millennialist denomination. This changed rapidly, rapidly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Especially under the writings of uh, Dr. J.G. Voss in his Blue Banner magazine. He set out to see the RPCNA change from post-millennialism to amillennialism, and he did a good job at doing that. Because today, I would venture to say that 90% of our denomination is amillennialist. Um, so these are the different positions. There are some that are not permitted in our denomination if you are seeking to hold office. There's one that is blasphemous and must be rejected in its entirety. But then there are two that are fully acceptable that men, great men in the Reformed tradition hold to. And there is the freedom for you to examine Scripture yourself, to be a Berean, 
and to determine where you would land on these positions. Uh, you may be thinking, why does this matter? And it, it, isn't the, the second coming of Christ, isn't the millennium reign all just like, not even secondary doctrines, isn't that like way down the list? Uh, and in actuality, it's not. Because Paul very clearly references uh, the end of times eschatology in his list of elementary doctrines. These are foundational truths and they will impact how you perceive other things in Scripture and how you go about doing uh, the work of a Christian in this life. Would there be a so that's not a view of the second coming. That is an interpretation method of prophecy. And we can, we can discuss that at lunch. Uh, so basically, just to give you some meat to chew on, and then we can talk about it at lunch if you want to, the varying views of interpreting prophecy are a hyper-literalistic interpretation, which is what you see in the premillennial views of historic premill and dispensationalism. Then there is a preterist view, which full preterism is heresy. Uh, full preterism would say that all, uh, all prophecies in Scripture have been fulfilled, including the resurrection. And that's why it's heresy. It denies a resurrection of the dead. Uh, partial preterism is what most people today would be. Uh, and that is the view that almost all prophecies have been fulfilled except those concerning the resurrection, essentially. Then there is the idealist uh, interpretive method which uh, shows that there are these patterns and cycles uh, of events that take place all throughout Scripture, and that's how we're to interpret the prophecies is through these cycles, through these ideals. Um, someone like Joel Beakey would be an idealist, uh, a millennialist. Um, and idealism and partial preterism are primarily positions associated with amillennialism. Uh, except for the partial preterists who are reconstructionist postmillennialists and reconstructionist postmillennialism is, it's a whole nother ball game and we haven't even talked about that and I don't plan to because it's, it's trash. Um, yeah. Gary North, R.J. Rush Dooney, uh, Greg Bonson, those guys really popularized Reconstructionism uh, in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s. And now most popularly, people like Doug Wilson um, and uh, Jeff Durbin of Apologia Ministries 
they would be your most popular reconstructionists today. Um, and then the final interpretive method is what's called historicism, and that is the view that uh, prophecies are fulfilled throughout history and through historical events. And that is the historic method of interpreting prophecy of the Reformed. Um, it's no longer the most prominent position, but historically that is the position of the Reformed Church in understanding prophecy. And if you want to see what historicism looks like in actually interpreting scripture, read James Durham's commentary on Revelation. It's the best commentary on Revelation there is, and it's from an historicist perspective. Wilhelmus of Brockle also has a commentary on Revelation that's from an historicist position. So those are interpreting or interpretive methods for interpreting prophecy. Those aren't views of the second coming. All right. We don't have time for more questions. I'm sorry. I told you uh, I was going to try to rush through this. We could talk about this more at lunch if you have questions or comments. Um, and if you want to talk about the interpretive methods a little more, or if you want to talk about uh, Reconstructionism and why I say it's trash, uh, we could talk about that as well. But uh, that's all we have time for right now. Uh, we're already late, so we need to go ahead and close. Uh, Richard, can you close us in prayer? Amen.